This is Dave Chaos, station manager at KNON, here with former KNON DJ and staff person, known for her country, folk, and oldies shows. Her contributions to KNON have been many. She has a voice listeners recognize in an instant. Dottie Webb, known on the air as Ranger Rita. Rita, thank you for joining me for this KNON History Podcast, Ranger Rita's Story. Let's start with the music. You have played very different types of music while you were a DJ at KNON. What kind of music did you listen to growing up? My dad liked uh, country music like uh, um, Bob Wills and Tex Ritter and stuff like that. And my mom was a classical piano player and played lots and lots of Mozart. And then um, I thought that was all great until I was about 14 and I heard a Buddy Holly record and... Uh, the rest is history. I have been a sucker for 45s ever since. Why, why did you like it? Uh, Buddy Holly? I just liked it. It was happy. It was fun. I don't know. It, it just, it wasn't something that you had to do to, you know, make the teacher at school happy or, you know, anything like that. It was just good, fun music. And it didn't have bad words or anything in it. Once they'd, once in a while, they'd say he could really go to well, <laughs> and uh, that's how that you know they wouldn't just say that back then. Do you remember which Buddy Holly record it was that you first heard? Which song it was? Um, let's see. It was uh, Oh Boy and Every Day. They were both, and then Peggy Sue was the other one. Every Day and Peggy Sue, I think, were back to back. And uh, Oh Boy was by the Crickets, but it was really Buddy Holly. And I really just liked the way it sounded. It was catchy. You could sing it, you know, and like that. Where did you grow up? Uh, in Phoenix, Arizona, far, far west Texas. <laughs> How did you get to Dallas? Well, I got married, and my husband got a job at TI, and the rest is history, as you say. You know, oh, it's, it's okay. just, uh, I've lived here since 1967. And that, that's interesting. That's how I got to Dallas. What? I got married. My wife got a job at TI. <laughs> well, that's the way it goes. Exactly. <laughs> how did you first hear about KNON? My husband came home from work, and he said, they've got the most wonderful show on KNO on this station. It sounds like they're, I don't know, held together with bubble gum and paper clips, but they really have some good music. And he told me all about uh, Groovy Joe Poovy. And uh, I wanted to listen to it, but at that point in time, my kids, our kids were like, oh, 12, 11, around in there, and they didn't want to do their homework. And so every day after school, they had to do their homework first, and then we could play and have fun. Oh, Mom, come on, you know. And so I never listened to the radio until finally the younger one was a lot more serious about school. And so he would do his homework. And so then I got to listen to it to, um, well, it was the, the Super Roper Redneck Review is what it was all the way through there. And I'd listen to that, and I just loved the music, and I was hearing music that I hadn't heard since uh, 1974, 75, when K, uh, I think it was KDNT, and also, um, who had Peck and Penny in the morning? Was that uh, K-Hat? And um, anyway, there was some music that was played in the 70s, and then it 
disappeared, and they never could find out again. And there was the oh, L.A. Freeway and um, Rita Ballou. Those were two that I remembered and loved and couldn't ever find them anywhere. And I just kept looking, and then I started thinking, maybe I imagined this, but I didn't. It was, and I heard Roy Ashley play it, and it was a pledge drive. He played Rita Ballou, and I called in and pledged, oh, I don't know, $30 or something. And uh, then... Um, that was uh, that was in eighty six, eighty seven. Let's see. My older son graduated from high school in eighty six. That's Dean, and uh, Steve the cockroach. <laughs> and uh, so, what did you do before you started at KNON? Oh, I was. Um, I, I still am kind of off and on one. Um, a librarian at a local genealogy library. And I can translate, like, stuff into German and stuff into French and Spanish. Now, Spanish isn't so good, but my French and German are pretty good, and I can think in those languages. Multilingual. Oh, yes, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. And what Canoan DJs inspired you to become involved with the station? Oh, Ranger Royce and Ranger Randall were the first two really big uh, influences in my life uh, for that, and um, I loved the music that they played. It was called their show was called Texas Folk Music, and they would take turns every other week. One or the other would do it, and then uh, I liked uh, Roy Ashley a whole lot too. I, the commander. Oh yeah, well he was Ranger Roy back then. <laughs> Ranger Roy and Ranger Royce and Ranger Randall, and I thought, you know. <laughs> They're all rangers. Yeah, well, why not? I guess I could be one, too. Ranger Rita. (laughs) And I took that that Rita Baloo song. So, yeah, let's uh, let's get into that a little bit. Uh, That was actually my next question. Where did you get your on-air name, Ranger Rita? Well, the other guys were all rangers, and I didn't want to be left out. So I, Ranger, and I think, what about, what kind of name was it? Rachel, Rhonda. Oh, Rita, Rita, yes. And so I just took that name, and it's uh, kind of, you know, people go, yeah. my sister says, boy, that's weird for an older lady to take a silly, goofy name like that. And I said, well, yeah, you know. But it's can Yeah, some people worry about their image, but um, like one lady, I won't say any names here, but one lady thought that maybe she could get a show here at KNON because she was helping uh, answer phones. And she said, I wonder what kind of show they'd give me. And I said, probably nothing because you don't have a big record collection. And she said, well, no, but I like music. And I said, you got to have a big record collection and you got to know everything about all the records in your collection, (laughs) including the matrix numbers, the dead wax, all that. And then... And, and, and then you have the, the, the groundwork for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they can't just call up and say, we get phone calls all the time, you know, they want to hear something that, I will look it up, it's 1987 or something. <laughs> My show stops at 1962. <laughs> so you started in 1986 mm-hmm. on the Texas Folk Music Show. Mm-hmm. How did you become involved with that show? I was listening all the time to KNON. I couldn't believe the great music they were playing. Even the heavy metal was great. For you know, it was just it was such a refreshing change from the uh, 
dreck that was on the so you other. stayed up late and listened to Jerry Warden play heavy metal? Once in a while. Ah, okay. Yeah, well, usually what happened was I'd have to, I'd be the chaperone for the kids to go to the church dances. And so I'd go home and I'd have the radio going because they never wanted to talk to mom. Oh, you know, and uh, so I'd play it. And Jerry Warden was funny. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> he was our first metal DJ. Um, so you you started out on the Texas Folk Music Show. How did you end up getting on that show? Well, Royce put in kind of a plea, like, please, oh, please come help us answer the phones. The, the truth was, if you showed up in Pledge Drive and you didn't have somebody to answer the phones, you'd get fired for two weeks or, you know, sent home for two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> and so... He was, please, oh, please, I got to have somebody. And so I called up and said, I'll come down, you know. And so when I came down there, and he was so happy to see me because it was just, uh, you know, he, he played real low-key. Um, Towns Van Zant was kind of action-packed for him. It was real low, uh, lie-de-lie-lie, give me your hand stuff, you know. And he it. I don't know. I don't think he really liked my show because he never pledged to my show ever. Because <laughs> uh, I was playing more like Randall played a lot of uh, uh, Steve Earle and Joe Ely and stuff like that. So you went down and helped out uh-huh. answering phones. Uh-huh. And, then and how did you wind up being on the air after that? That was early 87, like, you know, what was it? March, I think, was when they had March, June, and, you know, for the pledge drives. Oh, I know what it was. There was some, I don't know, T-shirt or something I wanted. So I pledged some money to the show, and then I decided, why not pledge, you know, every month I'll pay, send the $10 or something in. And so I did that for a while, and then I'd also call him up and say, because I'm a real record junkie, and I'd call him up and I would say stuff like, um, have you seen that new Guy Clark album out yet? It's, you know, so-and-so. And so... He told me that that was probably the real reason they gave me the show was because I knew the kind of music that they were playing, and I wasn't always asking for, uh, you know, Megadeth. And that. So what what happened to Ranger Royce? How did um, you inherit the show? Well, Royce, Randall and Royce both were bankers. <laughs> and, uh, it was weird. And uh, they didn't, you know, let anybody know that they were bankers exactly. But that's why they would trade off so that they could, wouldn't be absent from work. And they didn't, they couldn't always do the show. And finally, one or the other of them got a promotion, and they couldn't possibly have just one guy do it because that, it, it was too much. And so they said, well, would you like to do the show? And I said, sure, you know. I'm <laughs> so you started out doing folk. Mm-hmm. And that's when I met you. You came down there one day to answer phones on uh, Charlie Doe Park show. I think you showed up. It was you showed up on the uh, Texas folk music show. I don't know if you answered and stayed or what, but you were there, and um, that's how I knew who you were. So, where did you find your music oh. for the Texas folk show? That's something that I've done all my life, except just recently I haven't done it anymore. But. Um, hanging around at record stores on Saturday afternoon. There's no better place to be on this earth than a record store on Saturday afternoon because it's where things are happening, you know? 
you may know that too. Yeah, where all the music enthusiasts are coming out. Yes, and you just, it's not even to see other people. It's just because that's where the music is. And so I got, I, I, I guess uh, most of them are closed now. You can look at a record label from the 50s and tell whether it's good or not by the graphics and stuff. If it's a reissue, it'll probably have a lumpy edge on it too. But just the way it is, I've gambled on a lot of things and gotten really good things like there was a Ronnie Dawson Rock'em Bones on a 45. <laughs> yeah. By, it was called Auditorium. Rock- okay. Yeah. Okay. And uh, yeah, that was what it, that one, and uh, there were a whole bunch of other ones. And I just, yeah, I'd see something, I'd go, oh boy, this looks good. And he's got two songs by Guy Clark. Hey, I, I can't resist this. And I'd take <laughs> it home, and usually I'd find a lot more good stuff on it, and then I'd share it with, I love being on the air because I could share it with other people. When did you join the Canoan staff? Well, I had been hanging around since uh, 87. And um, it was a neat place to go and hang around every day. It was almost as good as a record store every day, you know, except it wasn't, I wasn't buying records or anything or stealing them or anything else. It, it just had that feeling to it. What was your role What oh, on the, staff? Oh, at the beginning, the very beginning, I didn't get paid and I didn't mind that I didn't get paid. You know, my husband had a job and all that stuff. But um, I... Um, started out just, we used to get these barrels and barrels full of records from record companies and managers and stuff like that. And so I would open the records and I'd listen to them. And if I didn't have time or any way to figure out what they were, I would take them home and listen to them and then, you know, label them uh, women's music or Nancy Griffith type stuff or you know, I'd say something about it that people would say okay yeah yeah know what kind of music it was mm-hmm. and uh, once in a while I get something kind of wrong but most of the time I got you know they could tell and the blues guys won't play this but it says blues on it you know and things like that so anyway that's what I did first and then I was hanging around at KNON pretty regularly at that point. And you were working for free at mm-hmm. first. Yes. And, and doing music director work yeah. with previewing music uh-huh. and, and putting it in the KNON library. And also telling the DJs any kind of press kits with pictures and stuff. I'd put them in like Dono got the blues stuff and he could distribute it to if he thought J-Mac would like it better or Jim Suler or one of those guys, you know. Uh, that I did that with everything. So and Jim Suler, uh, local blues musician, mm-hmm. uh, well-known blues musician. He is. He was a blues DJ at KNON. Yeah, eleven to one, I believe, was his shift. Uh, and then we hired Mitch, uh, Mitch Palmer, to do the next. Okay. The one Mitch that, was also a blues DJ. Yeah, I was one to four. Or a blues a. musician. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, there was a bunch of them. Yeah. So. So you were talking about the day that, oh, yeah. that that there was a bunch of rock DJs fired. Mm-hmm. He got, uh, the station manager just got really disgusted. And I don't know, he was mad at, he had some <laughs> vendetta on, on the uh, music director for rock music. I didn't do the rock music. I did the blues, country, folk, 
Um, Zydeco, gay, western swing. Everything but but rock. Yeah. And uh, anyway, uh, he was really disgusted with the rock. With the music director for the rock format. Yeah. And so he was going to fire her, and then he decided that he was just going to get rid of all of this. And uh, most of them, like you, Kelly and uh, Jennifer, they came in and, oh, we don't have a show. You know, and they just look like they're going to cry, and I don't blame them. I felt like crying, too. I mean, it was just sad. Well, what happened was all of us rock DJs got fired, Mm -hmm. but none of us were told. Right, you had to show up for your show, and it wasn't really my job to tell you because I was just a lowly music director kind of a Volunteer person. person. Yeah. Uh, mail opener. <laughs> so I I got word of that from the other rock DJs who'd shown up to be told that they no longer had a show. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe that I was being fired for no reason. So I lived in the neighborhood because that's what I could afford. So yeah. <laughs> seven five two oh four guys. <laughs> I walked I walked down to the station to hear it for myself that I'd been fired, and I walked in the office. And uh, the station manager was there. He saw me come in. He immediately ran behind you, ran behind your desk, and told you to tell me. And I don't remember if I said, uh, Mr. X wants you to be fired, or if I said, you know. You said, you look so sad and, and so forlorn. You said, well, you don't have a show anymore. None of the rock DJs have a show anymore. And I and do you remember what I said? No. Keep my number. You'll need it. <laughs> Boy, that was prophetic words. <laughs> well, I got called two weeks later and brought mm-hmm. back. I mm-hmm. and, and that was because I was the only only rock DJ that didn't go to the press nor uh, protest in front of the station. So I have when, your picture put in the uh, Dallas Observer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, for me, it wasn't that. For me, what the, the most important thing to me was to come back to Kano and play the music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what most of the DJs do. They, they love the music so much. I guess we'd play it for, you know, if there was a place to play it, we'd play it. And it's not like, uh, uh, how much money am I going to get? Do I get a vacation every year? And, <laughs> no, you didn't get none. None. It didn't make any difference. It was fun. And that's the thing about working at KNON. The rewards working here are so great. The, the emotional rewards are so great. You don't mind $100 a week, you know. That was that's what a, I started out at. Yeah. Oh, you, get, you were supposed to get commissions. Commissions. Yep. Yeah. Can you tell us... Once you were on staff, what a typical day was like. Oh, I'd walk in. As a, I, I, we had a, a thieving problem at that time. And uh, there, some of us had different ideas about who might have been doing the stealing. But anyway, um, Mark Teuton had some choice words for who he thought was. But uh, anyway, I'd walk into the studio, uh, into the, uh, this is into the office, right? Yeah, on a typical day. Yeah. And uh, I had, there was a, there were a whole bunch of awful desks in that building. They were really awful and old and had splinters in them because they were solid wood. There's none of this formica stuff like you got contact paper. Wow, you know. And uh, 
So anyway, we, I'd walk in, and we had this terrible stealing problem. Everything would take up legs and walk if you didn't keep an eye on it. And that's where I got to be so proficient with an inscriber or engraver. I can write my name and engrave it, and I can write it backwards. I still have a letter opener with your name on it. Oh. <laughs> no, you don't, because that was a sterling silver one that I was using. No, no, it was, it was uh, it says, uh, the killer robot. Oh, okay, the typical day, though, is I'd walk into the uh, room, and usually the phone was ringing, and I'd uh, answer it if I feel like it, you know, because it was, I always had this great big box of junk that I'd carry with me, and have records in it, and I'd have headphones, and uh, water, maybe a sandwich, you know, stuff like that. And uh, so I'd put that down in the makeshift area of the desk that I used for a little, it was a knee hole kind of a desk. And so then the phone would start ringing. And pretty soon, Marsha, I got to tell you about Marsha. I love little Marsha. She was so sweet, <laughs> so cute. Everybody liked her. And uh, Marsha would say, Rita, something happened last night and this and that. And I'd go, oh my gosh. And so then we'd have to put out a couple of fires, and then it was time for lunch. And if you went down to the Burger King on the corner and got a hamburger, for a Burger Doodle hamburger, what do you call them, Whataburger? No, not Whopper. Whoppers, oh yeah. You got a Whopper, and you'd set it down on your desk, and you better keep your eye on it, because if you didn't, you'd pick it up and it'd be a cockroach. Yeah, it'd be impressive. I did some... Uh, research on cockroaches while I was working there, and uh, Scientific American was not interested. But I think I have proven that cockroaches can read, because I, they had these little traps at the time. They were about as big as a big matchbox, and it said, um, you know, the kind that you pull out, and, and it had oh, uh, resin stuff that they, the, the cockroaches would run up into it, and they'd fall in the resin and get stuck. And then they die a horrible death. And so, anyway, so um, I put on, I got the little box and I wrote on one side, girls, girls, girls. And I've made an arrow for that side. And then the other side, I put free beer. And, you know, there was only one cockroach who fell for the free beer. It was a big, big, great big jumbo cockroach and all the other little cockroaches on one of the girls and i've proven it the scientific american didn't want to didn't yeah they didn't respect your research no well um what was your most distinct memory of working in the first canoe location the infamous white house of east dallas wonder who's going to be listening to this. <laughs> Every Thursday night, there were some crack houses and drug houses and stuff all around their apartments, but they, the uh, crack dealers and stuff. They, and brothels. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was right at the corner. Yeah. And um, anyway, so there were all these interesting people. Every Thursday night, you could count on it. There'd be gunshots outside. And I, I got to a place where I'd call the police, 911. Hi, my name is Dottie Webb, and I'm at, uh, I had the phone number memorized. There's an extra, uh, whichever number you're dialing from. 
And I'd tell them the number, and then I'd say, I'm at uh, 4415 San Jacinto, and there were gunshot gunshot sounds outside. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I'm, I don't care if you come and tell me the outcome of it, but I do want you to know that somebody, something got shot. And I'd always say, you know, hi, this is Dottie Webb, and I'm calling about the gunshots. It's Thursday night. Yeah. <laughs> and I got to where I was just, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> That was always kind of fun. I don't know. Yeah, I I, I, I remember that now that yeah. you bring it up. Yeah. I, I remember trying to encourage you to just not bother. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was kind of, I don't know. It was just, I felt it was my duty as a citizen. As a concerned citizen. Yes. And, um, and, I, and I felt it was my duty to tell you, you know, they'd probably rather hear, it'd probably be more significant if you called them and said there weren't gunshots that night. Oh no! <laughs> and that, that would—they'd find that more surprising. Yes. Can you describe for us something that really stood out to you about the early Canoan location? I liked it. I liked it because it was—it had a a real sense to it that you know, real as in reality, where other places that you work sometimes are you know, well, I've got better shoes than you've got and stuff like that. But this was, I don't know, I felt, I felt at home at it. It was down to earth, and it was, uh, I don't know, just I liked it a whole lot. And when we moved to Maple, I, didn't, I wasn't in on the move to Maple, but I was there the last couple of years. And that, I don't know, it, it kind of was a letdown because there weren't any, you know, cockroaches and uh, weird stuff. And, uh, <laughs> There was, oh, the bathroom at the old White House. It was so bad. It had a little lock on the door, a little, one of those little slider locks on the door. Don't ever forget to set that when you go in there. I'll never forget, I had uh, one of our DJs, one of our uh, metal DJs. He was uh, heading out, and I, I went to talk to him. He's like, man, I got to get going. I'm like, well, what's the hurry? Well, I, I'm heading down to the club to watch a show tonight, down to the punk rock club, mm-hmm. and um, I, I got to go to the bathroom, and I absolutely won't use the bathroom here because the bathroom at the, the heavy metal club is in better shape. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> and I thought, I've been in that bathroom there. They they don't have any stalls, just an open toilet and a couple. Like It's like. You know, that's kind of like a jailhouse bathroom, but it's better than, okay. Oh, that, that bathroom was so nasty. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's go on to the next. So um, I always told people that when we moved out of the White House in East Dallas, the stories that were commonplace on a day-to-day basis would become harder and harder for people who were not there to believe. Mm-hmm. Do you have any story like that? Well, the one about the cockroaches, although it could be my imagination there, but the uh, oh, people falling down the stairs, they had this staircase, and it, oh, gee. And um, Craig Taylor, Nightman, said one time that there was one particular DJ, I won't say her name, but she was kind of, she was impaired a bit, and he said he, every time she, he'd see her go up those stairs, he'd pray. She'd make it to the top and not fall. Uh, it was really bad. You had a saying about a Guy Clark tape oh. that you said during your show. Mm-hmm. What was it? 
I'm broadcasting out here from Ranch Road 13, where it's illegal to drive. Oh, yeah, on Ranch Road, Ranch Road 13 was the name of the street. And it's illegal to drive out here without a Guy Clark tape in your car. Kind of dates it because they don't have tapes at all yeah, anymore. Yeah, well, that, that's... Uh, what were some of the most interesting people you ran into while at KNON? I can tell you a couple of boring ones, but... <laughs> Um, I think most of the people I met there were uh, interesting, even the fairly, a couple of fairly boring ones whose names I will not say (laughs) get sued bad. But, uh, you know, even the ones that were kind of ho-hum were still interesting, good to talk to and fun. How did KNON staff person and country DJ Trevor keep the electricity on at KNON? I don't know. He didn't pay the electric bill. I did finally pay the electric bill, but uh, uh, I don't know. Climb the pole. Oh, really? He climbed the pole <laughs> and bootlegged the electricity. Oh no! <laughs> oh, I don't. I didn't know that. Trevor didn't tell me a lot of things either. You know? it, well, maybe it was better there that was you didn't know. There was a lot of things we didn't talk about. Yeah. <laughs> So we worked together on the KNON staff from 1992 uh-huh. to 1994. I'd like to thank you for your support when I started and helping me understand the ropes. Mm-hmm. KNON did not offer much training. It was show up and sink or swim. Did yeah. you receive any training when you started? No, they mostly just said uh, they didn't train me at all. Um, Pat Avery came in and helped me the first show I did. He showed me how to run the boards and stuff like that and how to rewind the tape a little bit so it would uh, cue nicely. And he showed me a bunch of stuff like that, but there wasn't any real, um, uh, look, if anybody comes in here, you know, or anything like that, do this, do that. No, they, they wanted me to put, Keep a list of all the records we got. I did that. Keep track of all the the flyers and stuff that came with the records. But so when you got hired on staff, mm-hmm. what did what were you hired to do? Oh yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. Now I remember. Um, it was uh, I was supposed to keep be like the bookkeeper, and uh, Liz wanted some help. In Liz was the acorn person, and she wanted some help because she was overseeing the radio station and acorn, and it was a big job, and so she kind of was getting rid of some of these little jobs. And so uh, I was hired to uh, keep the uh, books and write the payroll, um, not just payroll, but um, the budget. Okay. And okay. so I had to write all that stuff out, and she would tell me what to write checks for. And uh, I would go through some of the stuff like, we, oh, gosh, the the money we owed on that tower rent, <laughs> that was one. And um, there were some other things that, uh, there were some other. Who was, oh, a, who was the station manager at the time? Oh, when I first got started, Jeff Murray. Okay, okay. And then after Jeff came um, Mark. One of Kanoen's early DJs, Ranger Randall, whom you mentioned earlier, 
remembered your time on staff as bringing physical cleanness and orderliness to the offices and studios. You were there when I started, so the example had been set. How did you find the studio and the offices when you started, and how did you bring physical cleanness and orderliness? Well, first off, it's kind of a second nature with me, but I walk into some place where everything is just, I always called it dirty socks and last night's pancake batter for just, you know. So you gave a lot of DJs their first start. Many are still with KNON. Is there any DJs that you brought on that left an impression on you? Well, Frank Joseph is one. He does the Jewish Hour. And Lefty, his brother, Frank Joseph is also righty. <laughs> He's Lefty's brother. And um, Lefty does the uh, country oldies show. And, um, oh gosh, uh, Marsha is one I really, really remember fondly. I was old enough to be her mother. She, <laughs> she was the same age as uh, Steve the Cockroach. And I said to her one day, you know, I could have been your mother. And she said, uh, you know, we're going, <laughs> but uh, she was such a cute little girl. She kind of reminded me of a little duckling or a little chick, baby chick, you know. And uh, she just, she was so sweet and so sincere. And everybody loved Marsha, except uh, the station manager. <laughs> Who was the killer robot? Oh, well, it just so happened that there were thieves at KNON, and I learned how to use one of those diamond engraver things, so I wrote my name on everything, or the killer robot, or hands off, or, <laughs> you know. Anyway, uh, the killer robot was a kind of alter ego. He never really uh, showed up on the show, but what he did was every day... He'd roam the streets of Dallas fighting crime and looking for records. And yeah, I like that part. And so, anyway, uh, the killer robot did a lot of uh, sleuth work. And one time, uh, oh boy, this is getting to be a, a list of horrors. I'm thinking. So, the killer robot was essentially your alter ego. Mm hmm. Yeah. And, and that, that's the, the, name you took to make enforcement memos yeah, and right. put warnings on things to yeah. don't take these things, you know, the killer says robot. the killer robot. And I had a rubber stamp that had little funny uh, um, computer-looking letters on it. That, uh, yeah. And um, so you've mentioned her a couple times, but let's, let's um, address it uh, head on. Who is Marshall McGee and what was her role at KNON? Okay, well, I guess I'll tell you everything. <laughs> KNON had a, a, like a motto that we were going to be the voice of the people, and we were going to uh, have uh, news and information kind of shows, you know, and kind of like, uh, what was that, Amy Goodman or something like that, you know. So that's what Liz was kind of hoping for. And so... She was looking around at all of our programming and noticed that we had all kinds of stuff, but we didn't have a public affairs kind of a thing. And so she went poking around, and she hired a little 22-year-old girl from, I guess it was Michigan State or somewhere around in there. And uh, 
because she was from uh, Flint. And Marcia came on. Uh, oh, first off, uh, Liz told me about Marcia, that there was a new woman going to come in and do the news and public affairs. And I was kind of going, Aww. and I mentioned it to a couple of people, and they all said, Aww. you know, that's just going on. Yeah, because they were all into the music. Yeah, huh? They, they were all into the music. Right. And not, not the talk and the news yeah. and public affairs. Yeah. And that at that point in time, I was still not working for money. And so I was feeling kind of like, oh, they're going to pay her and they're going to pay me. Oh, well, uh, you know. <laughs> and I just kind of, you know, it, I felt more not wanted or not needed than I did uh, jealous or anything like that. So Marsha walked in that morning, the morning that she walked in, and I saw her and I thought, Oh, she is such a cute little girl. She looks like a little chicken, you know, a little duck. <laughs> so um, I got to know her better, and I got to talking to her and everything. And then the um, station manager blew up all over Liz's office. He said, why are you hiring somebody? We can't pay the people we've got here. Why do you And... Um, Liz was trying to talk some sense into his head, and he wasn't having it because he was right. We didn't have money to pay for something. Because the news shows never really made money on uh, Pledge Drive like the music shows did. So anyway, Marcia, though it turned out um, she helped a lot with the... Um, she helped with, like, substitute rock DJ kind of thing. And she also um, helped. We had a women's show at the time. It was a lesbian women's show. And that uh, she helped with that a bunch. And she helped the gay guys with their shows. And she helped. Um, her favorite one was that Jack. <laughs> that Remember Jack? I can't remember his last name, but he was a... The uh, Monday night DJ from uh, 11 to 1. And <laughs> he was young like she was. And they were cute little, you know, two of them. And so anyway, but she would help a lot. And she did always was there to answer phones for pledge drive. If you showed up and didn't have anybody, she'd go in there and help you. And I would do that too. So she was hired to do news. And sounds like she ended up doing pretty much everything else too. Mm-hmm. She did a, another, she got a housing show. This was back when the RTC, the Re Resolution Trust. Corporation. Yeah. Uh, she got some underwriting on that. And she was also, she hired somebody, Marsha and Liz hired somebody. To, uh, was a, That was that Debbie or Deborah. Anyway, they hired her and they had her do a lot of the talking about you know, you can go down here tomorrow and bid $5 and, you know, that kind of stuff. And so uh, Marsha was a very hard worker. Yeah, Marsha came on and as a news person and wound up doing many other duties. And she was, what she did in her spare time was she wrote stories and she'd sold some stories to Oh, like Mademoiselle and Glamour and Seventeen. And mm. she, she sold stories to that and that kind of, but she was, her parents came down to visit her and they saw, and they said, you don't have any food. And she said, oh, yeah, no. None of us did. Yes. Um, so 
When did you leave Kanoan? Uh, it was like August, I mean, April 14th, 1994. I think it was a, it was a Saturday. So what did you do while you were gone? Uh, Ten years or so that I wasn't on the air. Oh, I had lots of other things to do. I, I got really involved with the uh, genealogy library at our church, and um, I did a lot of stuff, you know, just church kind of things, you know, and making casseroles for sick people and that kind of stuff. When did you come back? In March of uh, 2011, first, the first uh, Saturday in March 2011. And wh- why did you decide to come back? Why did you want to come back? I mean, I thought you were a really good guy. And, and like when I said, when that Bobby Elliott thing, when I said, well, you know, you apply for that to station manager too. One of us should get it. Me, Trevor, or you, you know, and Bobby Elliott. <laughs> so tell us about the radio show you started when you came back. It was, uh, I had been doing that show since, that was one of the fill-in shows from when the, the Magic Time Warp show. Yeah, when the station manager had fired all the rock DJs, and there was a big gaping hole there from uh, 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. on um, Tuesday night, I guess it was, and I could find people for most of the other ones, but that particular time slot I couldn't, and I said, well, I looked around, and oh, I, I got some uh, and rock and roll oldies, you know, the 50s kind of music. I like that stuff. I got <laughs> a whole room full of it. And so I just, I thought, well, I'll do that, you know, and then we can talk about it and argue about it later. And I just, I, I cut the date off at 62 because I think that's the last good year, and I have mathematically proved it. But How did you mathematically prove it? Well... I took a bunch of different variables that were important, you know, like um, uh, the Baskin-Robbins cons- constant, which is 31, and uh, the weight of a Mercury Turnpike cruiser in 1957 was 4,400 pounds. <laughs> and uh, I took a lot of important... Important calculations. Yes, and the bandstand, the bandstand factor, which was uh, 45, <laughs> you know, and... They were mostly just things that you'd, you'd, you'd recognize them. It, it was on my website, and I, something happened to my website. And I, <laughs> I so it was a, a culturally relevant oh, that combination. Book, that book that you, yeah, there it is. Yeah. It, well, it was more than that. It was um, French headlights, glossary. I think it's at the very beginning. Oh. Oh, Yeah. Oh, the Edsel factor, 110,749. That was the total manufactured units. <laughs> exactly. Color and model combinations available on a 55 Chevy, 157. The weight of a 1957 Mercury Turnpike Cruiser, 4,400. Speed limit in Nevada, 70. <laughs> that was true back then. The average number of B-movies at the Cactus Drive-In on Friday night. Yeah, you know, these are important things. Mm-hmm. And the Beach Boys factor was 409, and the Mamie Van Doren constant was 2. <laughs> Both of them. Oh, never mind. And the Baskin-Robbins number was 31. And then the uh, Delta time, I, made it, I set it up so it looks like a, it's a fake calculus problem, but it looks kind of... 
Um, the uh, Delta time was 1947 to 1969. Okay. And then the bandstand constant was 45. The angle of curvature on the 1959 tail fat Cadillac tail fin was 33. And the price of a case of A1 Pilsner beer in 1961 was $1.30. <laughs> so your son Steve is continuing the radio show you started. He is continuing to play the oldies. When did he first hear KNON? Uh, he was listening before I was because he was listening like later at night when they'd have like the rock shows. The metal shows? Uh-huh. And um, he got me started listening to Jerry Warden. <laughs> and when did he first come up to the station? Both of my boys came up to the station to help out on Pledge Drive. Okay. Was he always into the same music you liked? It's kind of like when you when you hear stuff when you're a little kid and you grow up and you still like it. Like I still like Bob Wills and uh, Tex Ritter and stuff like that too. And I also still like Mozart and Vivaldi. So it's kind of, you know. And uh, so he liked that kind of music. And he also liked heavy metal a lot. And he was a... Uh, well, he was the, the website moderator for, I think, Deep Purple or something. It was one of those two, Slayer, I don't know. Hmm. Have you worked for any other radio stations? Yep. And I actually quit KNON to work at another radio station. It was, um, let's see, it was 1989, and it was May 1989, is when I went on the air, it was KBEC down there in Waxahachie. And um, I told Jeff and um, Gail and Stephanie and all them about the, that that's what I was going to do. And I said, I guess I, you know. They said, oh, you can have a, uh, you can have a, a farewell show if you want. And I went, oh, okay. So I did. And uh, about oh, two months later, I still kept going down to Canaan and working during the day because Waxahachie was 43 miles from my house and KNON was a mere 17. So <laughs> anyway, I, uh, I was working there and uh, they were paying me. Uh, I think the minimum wage was like $4.25 an hour. <laughs> and so... What were you doing there? DJ. DJ, what kind yeah. of what kind of show did you do? It was um, Texas music, Texas country music, and I played a lot of stuff. Sometimes I'd even play like Steve Earle or Joe Ely, and the ones that people liked the most were like Charlie Walker and oh Lefty Frizzell, that kind of thing. They really liked that stuff. And anyway, I uh, was I'd still go down to KNON and volunteer, but I didn't. Uh, so you weren't doing a radio show no, at that time, though? No, I wasn't doing You're one on KNON. You were just volunteering for yeah. all the things. Yeah, I just because I like KNON. And so one day, uh, Lori Johnson, that little Lori, remember her? Lori Johnson worked in the, uh, she was the program director, I guess. And she said, would you like to do a show? And I said, well, I can't. I've got a show in Waxahachie. And she said, well, could you do both? And I said, well, we aren't allowed to, are we? And she said, well, we'll make an exception. 
it seems that Nancy, Nancy was doing a kind of a new agey folk show on Wednesday mornings, Words and Music it was called, and it quit, and I, I don't know what, why she quit or anything else, but she quit, and Pat Avery was having to fill in, and he was on staff, and um, it was just a you know, big mess, so I said, okay, i do it, so I did. So what kind of music did you do on that show? It was a Texas folk music show, because it was that folk music slot 9 to 11 a.m. on All right, Monday folk music Friday. block, mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, they kind of, they somehow, they got rid of that rule that you had to be, you couldn't have a show anywhere else if you, you know. So they let, it, they let us go, let me go. And then um, Choda, who was doing a New Age show, they found out, and Liza Richardson too, they found out that they were doing shows on KERA and they got fired. It's like that. And Jeff didn't want them around, but I got to stay. I was happy that I did, you know, but I, you know. And what's the highlight of your radio career, being on the air? I like my radio career mostly every week. (laughs) Being on the air. Yeah, I really enjoy it, you know. I've I've quit because, well, recently I've just, I'm not really up to it anymore as far as the energy level, but uh, I really, really just like being on the air and, are there any listeners that would call in that that you particularly remember? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Remember Robert? He had a kind of a high pitched voice, and he feel he was feeling really bad that they you know people sometimes thought he was a girl and stuff like that, and he he felt real bad. And one day, well, this was kind of a highlight of the, of one day. I got a phone call in the office, and it was an older man, and he said, can I talk to Ranger Rita? And I said, that's me. I don't, this is I, or something like that. you know. And he said, well, he was Robert's father, and Robert was in a rest home in um, Buckner area somewhere, and that... He had lost his Ranger Rita t- oh his K N O N T shirt. That's what it was, because he had taken it off, and the ladies that cleaned the room just swooped everything up, and they took his t- his K N O N T shirt, and he's just beside himself that he lost his K N O N T shirt. So I said, okay, well I'll go down there, and I found the K N O N T shirt, and I think I even threw in one of mine with the killer robot on it, and I went down there to see him, and. His mother and father were there, and I said, hi, is, is this Robert's room? And he goes, Ranger Rita! <laughs> he was so happy. And so I gave him the T-shirts. He was just, oh, wow, wow, wow. Nice, <laughs> nice. Yeah. I, there were a bunch of people like that. that I did. William uh, Blankenship was another one of those that um, he called in a lot, and he liked my show a whole bunch. And... and um, he called. He liked the country show. Robert called every show, day and night. You know, he was. I don't know. So, were there uh, any other callers or or any call in specific that that you still remember? Mm. I remember lots and lots of people from K N O N. I really do. It's, uh, I don't 
So were there any artists that came by the station that you met that, that uh, you can remember? I remember lots and lots of them. I remember I gave Guy Clark, I was, he was at uh, Poor David's one night, and I gave Guy Clark the uh, telephone number of the station, and I told him that uh, somebody might like to do an interview with him if he'd like to call in. So about two weeks later, he calls in, and he wanted to talk to me. And, oh, wow, Guy Clark wants to talk to me. Gosh. And I answered the phone, and I was trying real hard to be cool. You know, I'm going, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know how that goes. And uh, I talked to him, and he he's real, real taciturn. He, uh, very, very abrupt with words, you know. Yep. Nope. I don't know. I, I hung up from him, and I felt like i just had been stung. He was so, yeah, no, yeah, okay, sure, uh-huh. And then I found out later, he, he signed, he autographed a record for me that I had, I brought it in. I said, would you autograph this? And he said, sure. And he writes, to Ranger Rita, thanks, Guy Clark. <laughs> and I thought, yeah. <laughs> you know, he's, you know, thanks for playing my record and all that. So, anyway, um, Guy, Guy Clark. Clark would come down and hang out a lot. Mm-hmm. And whenever he's in town, he'd come by and visit. And Guy Clark was one I remembered, and um, Walter Hyatt was one I remembered. Too. And <laughs> what do you remember about Walter Hyatt? Um, he came down to be on my show one day, and we I interviewed him, and we talked a little bit. And then he saw that I had, uh, he was Uncle Walt's band, was his band. And he saw that I had a couple of his records there, and he grabs him and he starts looking and he says, what? What's this yuck? And I had written that. There's a song called Georgia on my mind. I hate it. And I hate Ruby Ruby too. And I had written yuck after both of them. And he goes, oh. I said, well, yeah, I don't like those songs. Look, I like these other ones. And <laughs> that wasn't the best thing I should have said. So he was miffed that you had wrote yuck next to his songs. Two of his songs that I didn't like, but I liked the rest Did of the Did you ever album. dream when you wrote that on that record that, that he would actually see it? No. <laughs> Not only that, but I always made notes on the records of, uh, like, watch out for the uh, surprise ending and, you know, things like that that I would help. It would help me be a better DJ. So then I said, <laughs> yuck, you know. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah. That meant you didn't like the song. Yeah. You know, and, and there's some other songs named Ruby and Georgia that might be okay, but not those two. <laughs> Do you remember any other artists? Oh, Richard Dobson used to come up there a lot. And uh, Wes McGee, I always enjoyed interviewing Wes McGee. And uh, usually Roxy Gordon would bring him up there. Were you there when Simon the Diamond brought Selena by? Oh, yes. <laughs> just a little girl and she was so hard to get along with that might be a way to say it <laughs> you know she could have been just frightened out of her mind in that awful house and <laughs> yeah yeah well Simon would always make her come by when she came to town mm-hmm. and and yeah I don't imagine that our radio station Looked anything like a lot of other radio stations you may have been visiting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Remember the time uh, Simon the Diamond fell through the floor downstairs? <laughs> no. Oh, gosh. 
uh, Simon the Diamond was kind of heavy, you know. And uh, don't know what exactly happened. There was a kind of a rotten spot right there on that wood floor. There was a pier and beam floor. Mm-hmm. So there's well, some places. Nothing that, underneath yeah. the floor. Uh-huh. And Not for three or four feet yeah. or five feet. Uh-huh. And he was downstairs one day doing something. And <laughs> all of a sudden, yeah, yeah. And I didn't pay much attention to it. Somebody yelling again, you know. <laughs> it didn't sound like kind of like gunshots, yeah. just all the time. Someone yeah. moaning and yelling yeah, or right. shooting or yeah. And it turned out he had stepped in this one spot on that floor, and his leg went through. <laughs> oh, it was so sad. And uh, let's see. I remember having to fix some holes in the floor that were there for looked like a long time when I started, and I did so by I found some scrap wood and I just nailed boards over the mm-hmm. holes and mm-hmm. and told people step over that. <laughs> yeah, that was good. That was very good. It was a free fix. Uh huh. What do you want for I nothing? I even used old nails that oh, I found. <laughs> Well, they wouldn't give you any money for new nails. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, just, just hoped I wouldn't need a tetanus shot after that. Yeah. Oh, Trevor did his one day. I don't know what happened. Guy Clark was going to be in town. I think it was uh, the, uh, that weekend. And I, was, I had my show on Monday night, Monday afternoon. And I told Trevor to be Guy Clark and just answer the questions I say and, and just say yep or nope. Uh-huh. And, and so he said, well, they won't think, I don't sound like Guy Clark. I said, you will when we get through here. And all we did, he said, I said, wow, Guy Clark. And he said, howdy. And I said, um, are you here for your show this weekend? And he said, yep. And I said, he's just doing yep and nope. Are you staying at the no-tail motel again? Yep. Room 42? Yep. <laughs> so, anyway, it caused some stir. People were calling our station and yelling, at, uh, is Guy Clark still there? And <laughs> oh, gee. And so, uh, I didn't do that ever again. <laughs> Did you meet any of the other musicians that came by for the other shows? Did you meet any of the rock musicians? I met Joe Ely and Steve Earle, but they were, uh, you know, they were really counted as country. That's who played them mostly, although Joe Ely got a little bit of play with uh, Jennifer and So Kelly. how'd you meet Steve Earle? He was at a show, and I just, you know, it was one of those where you go walk up and say hi, and he goes, hi, I'm playing my records, yep, yep, and then, shoop. And so that was kind of what happened with a lot of Tom Russell. Katie Moffat and I got to be good friends. I introduced, I, um, interviewed her and her brother, Hugh Moffat, and they were a very delightful pair. They they were brother and sister, and their mom, Joe, Joe Ellen or something, anyway, their mom, Sue, 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 Sue Joe, Sue Joe Moffat, that was it, and uh, anyway, their mom was quite a Mama Rose kind of a person, uh, but uh, that was fun, and uh, Kimberly McCarver. They're just lots and what lots. What other of interviews stood out to you? The ones with Wes McGee were usually pretty fun. 
And um, the Guy Clark one, when he called back to say hi and, and do an inter- phone interview, he said, I said, hi, how are you? How oh, fine, fine. I got a new record. <laughs> That's what he, you know. So you interviewed Guy Clark. Yeah. And um, that was kind of an interesting thing. I, you know, What else did you talk about? Talked about the new record. I said, how is it going to be different from the other record? Is it going to be different in any way from the other records that you've done? And he said, no drums. <laughs> see, he's a man of short words. <laughs> and uh, let's see, I interviewed, oh, Towns Van Zandt. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, Towns was a funny one because um, one night I was out running around in Austin and um, we ended up at the outhouse, I think, down there on the drag. And I said, um, he said, I, I don't know. Oh, I know. He came up to me and said, hi. And I said, hi. And uh, he said something. And I said, do you know who I am? And he said, yeah, you're Ranger Rita. And I said, yeah, you're right. Yeah, how'd you know that? And he says, it was so funny. I know it was a put on. And I had this jacket with this real long fringe on the arm, and he's rubbing that, and he says, do you mind if I play with your fringe? And I said, yeah. And he said, I'm not in it for the fringe. And I said, oh, jeez. It made me laugh, and whatever mood might have been, it really sounded. (laughs) So Towns came by for an interview? No, that was at uh, the Austin Outhouse. <laughs> oh, okay. So it was, uh, it's where you met him at a club. Mm-hmm. Okay. Did you ever meet Robert O'Kane? Oh, yeah. He was, uh, he wrote me a little note once. He said, Ranger Rita, every week like clockwork. I know it's going to be, it's Tuesday because I get your letters in the mail. I send out all these playlists. Because, you know, being a, writer myself i know how it feels to not have anybody pay any attention to you it kind of hurts you know it's um that's why i don't promote myself too much so you would mail out playlists Uh to the artists when they were played Uh i make xerox copies of them and then did you include a letter of any sort or just the playlist i i put the the letterhead or the rubber stamp on the K-N-O-N, and I'd write Ranger Rita on top of that. And then I'd hand address it to Robert Earl Keene or Guy Clark or whoever. And then uh, <clears throat> then you'd open it up, and inside it would show uh, my playlist. If it was on my playlist, I always send them my handwritten one, too. And that just, um, I don't know that it, the guys working here liked it very much that I did that. You're taking all the credit for this stuff. <laughs> Did you ever hear back from any of those artists? Oh, yeah. Uh, Lucinda Williams would send uh, Christmas cards every year for I don't know how long. <laughs> and um, they all liked, though, that, you know, if you're singing and you don't know if anybody's listening or not. Did you read this book? No. Well, <laughs> that's what I mean. And it kind of hurts. You put everything you've got into something. And, do you remember getting a new release and listening to it and being completely blown away? And, and if you do, who was it that was able to um, do that? Will T. Massey was one that, that then the Lone Star Will Stop Shining song. 
and I really, really liked his music a lot. And um, he fell victim to a lot of, uh, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, the greedy people. Everybody heard him, and it was like, it reminded me a whole lot of that little cartoon where the workman opens up the old cornerstone of the building, and he finds a little frog, and it comes out with, hello, my honey, hello, my baby. And so then he takes it, and he goes into the bar, and he says, look at this, and do something, and the frog goes, ribbit, <laughs> ribbit, <laughs> and and so that was kind of what he re, his career reminded me of a lot of that was just that there were so many people trying to just get rich off of him because he was something that could have made a lot. It was kind of like Joe Ely, a young Joe Ely, and really good. But I, I liked his stuff a lot. And um, Joe Ely is another one that I liked a lot, too. That so you said you had met Joe Ely, too? <laughs> oh, yeah. And... Um, I've, I've, you know, if you go down to the clubs in Austin, a lot of times there'll be other singers sitting there in the audience watching, too. And they go, oh, hi, Ranger Rita. So you went out to Austin to see shows? Mm-hmm. Did you do that a lot? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it was kind of nice because I also got to visit with my kids. And if they wanted to go out with me, you know, to the clubs, they could. And so you were the mom that drug the kid to the bar? Mm-hmm. So you, you, you drug the kids down to, to see the shows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> and sometimes they go, ah, Mom, we saw him last week. We don't like him. <laughs> okay. So. Yeah, my, my kids grew up going to so many Kano and Benefits that by the time they were 10 and 12, they were tired of going to bars. And all they wanted to do was hear Mozart, right? <laughs> well, they, they, yeah, they got into video games and things like that. But uh, they, they went to every Canoan Blues Fest while they were growing up. Oh, Dad, not another one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. My, my firstborn was taken, was born at Baylor. She, I took her by KNON before I took her home to show her off. So I like to tell her this day, you went to the radio station before you even went home. Oh, oh, this was when she was a little. Yeah, oh. yeah, literally which, just born. Which one was it? Two days old, the, Melody. No, I mean, no, no, I mean, which was it? The White House. Yeah, the White House. Oh. Yep. Yeah, we were still at the White House. Oh gosh. <laughs> you wrote a book called "Cruising Central: a Rock and Roll Novel." What is the book about? Probably about two hundred and seventy-eight pages. I think it's um, it's about growing up in Phoenix, Arizona, in the late 50s and the early 60s and it's um it's memory memoirs and stuff from 1962 that's where 62 was the last good year that was the year i should have graduated from high school (laughs) you know how that goes but 62 the rolling stones had just formed yeah and the guy and bill it was bill's Bill Himmelfarb's record store in Phoenix, Arizona, in Uptown Plaza. And I would go in there all the time, hang around on Saturday afternoon. And one time I said, do you have anything more by Jimmy Reed? I've got these two albums. Do you have anything else? And they said, no, but if you like Jimmy Reed, you'll love these guys. And he gave me England's newest hit Hit makers. And that was like 1963 or 64. And I took it home, and I loved it. And I, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I went back, and I bought a couple more of their records. And I started being a Rolling Stones fan. And I never liked the Beatles at all. So you've wrapped up your radio show. 
you're you're and you've left the radio show with your son do you plan on doing any other type of programming or anything well, more from here? Or? I would. I told him I'd be here for like for an emergency uh, phone answerer, or for um, like if everybody's out of town or has COVID or something, I'll come in and do the show. Well, I'd like to thank you for all you've contributed to KNON. Over and all will the years. continue as long as uh, Fillmore doesn't take my credit card away. <laughs> and thank you for sharing your stories for this podcast. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm I'm happy you did. This has been a wonderful time to remember all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, there, again, thank you so much for your stories, Rita, and and your contributions. Well, thank you.